Section 65 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey de Senna, Cordelaine. Chapter 17, The Scandinavian North, by the Reverend W. E. Collins, Part 3. 3. The Reformation in Sweden. We now return to trace the fortunes of Sweden, where, as we have seen, the massacre of Stockholm had decided the fate of the Danish rule. But if the Swedish War of Independence was already inevitable, in its actual course it was the work of one man, the young Gustav Eriksson, known to later ages as Gustavus Vasa, from the Fascin, or Schief, Vasa, which was the badge of the family. Born in 1496 at Lindholm, he had studied from 1509 to 1514 at Uppsala, after which he entered the service of the younger Stian Sture and fought under him against the Danes, given as a hostage to Christian II in 1518, and carried away treacherously to Denmark. He had broken his parole in September of the following year and made his way to Lübeck, whence, after some months, he was allowed to proceed to Sweden and landed near Kalmar on May 31, 1519. He spent the summer as a fugitive in the south, till the news of the massacre reached him, and he fled to his own remote province of Dolicalia. Here, after enduring many hardships and having many narrow escapes, he found himself early in 1521 at the head of a sufficient force of Dalisman to raise the standard of revolt. From this time forward it was never lowered until the whole country was in his hands, and the Danes had been driven out. The first success of the insurgents was the capture of the town, though not of the citadel, of Vastaros. Uppsala fell not long afterwards, and within little more than a year most of the Danish garrisons had been invested. Thanks to the undisciplined character of his troops, two attacks upon Stockholm failed, and the same thing occurred elsewhere. But Christian's own throne was insecure, and when, once the power of Denmark was divided, it could only be a question of time. On June twentieth, 1523, Gustavus entered Stockholm, and by July 7th the last Danish garrison in Sweden, that of Kalmar, had capitulated. Meanwhile, Gustavus was no longer merely the leader of a band of insurgents. On July 14, 1522, he was able to issue a proclamation as the recognized commander of the five provinces. An assembly at Valdstierna on August 24th is said to have offered him the crown, which he refused, accepting, however, the office of administrator, and adding that it would be time enough to choose a king when they had driven the foe out of the land. The general diet, so-called, met at Strengnas on May 27, 1523, but it is not clear whether the few magnates who still survived were summoned, but the Diet nominated a new Riksråd, and then, on June 7th, proceeded to elect Gustavus as King of Sweden. The new king's position was no easy one. Although he had been duly elected, he had little power. The peasants, who were his strongest supporters, were impatient of control, and the older nobles looked on him with jealousy, and almost with contempt. Sweden was so devastated by the war as to be practically bankrupt. The fields lay fallow, the mines were unworked, and many of the cities, Stockholm in particular, were desolated the swedish possessions in finland were still in the enemy's hands and the only ally of the swedes the city of lerbeck had helped them in pursuance of its own schemes of aggrandizement and was now claiming large sums of money to return for advances and aid given during the course of the struggle to appease them the diet of strengnas had granted to lerbeck danzig and their allies a monopoly of swedish commerce but ambassadors still followed gustavus wherever he went and urged the speedy payment of the account 
to eke out the scarcity of money gustavus like most of the kings of his day and to an even greater extent had adopted the plan of debasing the coinage but the effect was to inspire distrust and before long he was compelled to circulate his clippings at a greatly depreciated rate he was at the end of his resources and the only remedy to seem to be to turn to the church which was still as wealthy as ever the bishops as a whole were not unfriendly yuan brusque bishop of linshaping an astute and fan-seeking patriot had early thrown in his lot on the winning side with gustavus the danish bishops of strengnas and skara had been replaced by bishops elect who were favourable to him and the vacant sees of vesteros orbo and upsala from the last named of which gustav troller had fled were likely to be filled in the same way moreover gustavus himself was just then in good odour in rome he had indeed been accused of heresy by christian the second in fifteen twenty one but his cause found a staunch defender in the famous johannes magni johann magnusson a swedish scholar and canon of linshaping who had lived away from his country for seventeen years without losing any of his interest in its affairs he had studied at louvain under adrian of utrecht a man very like-minded with himself and in fifteen twenty two his old master now pope adrian the sixth sent him as legate to sweden he arrived whilst the diet of strengnas was in session was warmly welcomed and in turn spoke very warmly with regard to gustavus and seemed to look favourably on his plans for restoring efficiency to the church so much pleased with him was the new rixrod that it addressed a letter to the pope begging that he and the bishops might be empowered to set to work at once to this request no answer was ever made but soon afterwards the canons of Uppsala chose Johannes to be their archbishop. Under these circumstances, Gustavus, after having already in 1522 claimed an aid from the clergy, made in 1523 an urgent demand for money upon Bishop Brask, and issued a proclamation calling upon all the monasteries and churches to send him, as alone, such church vessels and send money as could be spared the amount which each diocese or monastery was expected to provide being stated in a schedule the result was not satisfactory the demands of the lerbeck ambassadors were indeed met but the forced loan caused no little irritation in sweden and gave mortal offence at rome a letter from adrian the sixth was presently received saying nothing about the confirmation of the bishops-elect for which gustavus had asked and insisting on the restoration of archbishop Trolla. the king wrote back in no measured terms refusing to restore him and in november second fifteen twenty three in demanding confirmation for the bishop-elect of orbo he threatened that if it was refused they would do without it and that he himself would carry out the reformation of the church Quote, let not your holiness be imagine he concludes that we shall allow foreigners to rule the church in sweden End quote. these were plain words and they appear to have some effect early in fifteen twenty four the new pope granted confirmation to peter magnusson the legate's brother bishop-elect vasteros in place of the former elect peter jacobson or sunenware removed for disloyalty and thus on rogation day there was consecrated in rome the bishop from whom the whole of the latest swedish episcopate derived its succession meanwhile gustavus's position was not growing easier soon after his accession a war for the recovery of finland had greatly taxed his resources this was followed by an expedition against the quote, robbers stronghold end quote, of zurg norby on the island of gotland which was rendered difficult by the ill-concealed jealousy of denmark and lerbeck and became a positive danger when bernhard von melen the german knight to whom gustavus had given the command of the expedition turned traitor and endeavoured by means of it to reconquer sweden for christian the second nor were things better at home 
the further demand for money which he was forced to make upon clergy and people alike gave rise to serious discontent when petter sunavarad was removed from vassaros for disaffection as has been mentioned above he fled to darlicalia along with kund the provost of vassaros at one time archbishop-elect of Uppsala, who had also been turned out and there they raised the standard of revolt one plot followed another now on behalf of christian the second now on behalf of one of the Sturas, and again early in fifteen twenty seven on behalf of a pretender to their name gustavus found no great difficulty in suppressing them and generally took severe measures of reprisal but he could not prevent their recurrence an entire readjustment of burdens as between the clergy the nobles and the people at large was plainly needed and when the king convoked the general diet of vasteros to meet him in june fifteen twenty seven it was with the deliberate intention of taking action in the matter but it was no longer merely or chiefly a question of money during the last few years lutheranism had made great strides in sweden and the whole status of the swedish church was now at issue the first preachers of the new opinions were olaus and laurentius petri olaf and lars petterson born fourteen ninety seven and fourteen ninety nine the sons of a blacksmith at urebru who had sent them by study at wittenberg with no idea of the consequences which were likely to follow on their return to sweden in fifteen nineteen olaus went to strengnas where as a master of the chapter school he soon acquired a great influence over the archdeacon laurentius andre lars andersson fourteen eighty two to fifteen fifty two for a time his teaching aroused no suspicion and his sermons preached at the diet of strengnas made a great impression but he had already roused the suspicion of bishop brusk who accused him of heresy in a letter dated may seventh fifteen twenty three and from this time forward was constantly urging gustavus to take action against him at first the king seemed to agree though he urged that persuasion was a better remedy than force but the inducements to take the other side were very strong and before long partly from interest and partly from conviction he had decided to give his support to the new preachers still protesting however that he desired to reform and not to overthrow the church in the summer of fifteen twenty four he summoned olaus petri to stockholm as city clerk and sent his brother to Uppsala, as professor of theology and made laurentius andre already his chancellor archdeacon of Uppsala. the advancing wave was checked for a moment in the autumn when the iconoclastic excesses brought about at stockholm by two dutch anabaptists knipperdorling and melchior rink caused a reaction of popular feeling and drew from gustavus a stern condemnation at christmas however a discussion held in the royal palace between olaus petri and petr gale a champion of the old order on the subject of the sufficiency of scripture once more gave them confidence and in february fifteen twenty five olaus publicly set the rules of the church at defiance by marrying a wife a few months afterwards gustavus directed archbishop magni to set on foot the translation of the bible into swedish the work was actually planned out and the books allotted to different translators but apparently owing to the opposition of brask it was never carried out and the vacant place was in part filled by a version of the new testament mainly the work of andre which appeared in fifteen twenty six followed subsequently in fifteen forty and forty one by a much better translation of the whole bible which was edited and largely made by laurentius petri in the same year fifteen twenty six gustavus sent a series of doctrinal articles to the prelates intending to use their replies as the basis for a second and more exhaustive theological disputation and although this plan fell through owing to the natural reluctance of some of the persons concerned to submit their faith to the tribunal of popular opinion the answers of petergale were published with disparaging comments by olaus petri while thus undermining the claims of ecclesiastical authority 
the king was also making insidious attacks upon the property of the church he systematically billeted his troops upon the monasteries he left no means untried to get a hold upon their internal affairs he sought out legal pretexts for reclaiming lands given to them by his ancestors the property of the bishops suffered in like manner and especially that of the richest of them the aged brusque whom the king seemed to have despoiled with special malice or policy archbishop johannes magni suffered even worse things injudicious letters which he had written to ecclesiastics abroad subjected him to a charge of conspiracy on which he was arrested and imprisoned the king allowed him to leave sweden in the autumn of fifteen twenty six ostensibly on an embassy to poland but it was really a banishment from which he never returned he took up his abode at danzig and was soon afterwards confirmed by the pope and consecrated with the barren title of archbishop of Uppsala. and thus at length the way was prepared for further encroachment by the terms of the summons the diet of Esteros was to discuss questions of faith and especially the relations between sweden and the papacy the diet met on june twenty fourth fifteen twenty seven there were present four bishops four canons fifteen lay members of the Riksraad, one hundred and twenty nine nobles thirty-two burgesses fourteen deputies of the miners and one hundred and four of the peasants for the first time in swedish history the bishops were degraded from their place of honour next to the king and were ranked below the senators smarting under the affront they held a secret meeting before the session of the following day at which instigated by brask they signed a set of protests a copy of which was found fifteen years afterward under the floor of the cathedral against anything that might be done in the direction of lutheranism or contrary to the authority of the pope when the diet again met the chancellor arose in gustavus's name reviewed the events of his reign and urged a necessity for the large revenue plainly pointing to the ecclesiastical property as the only source from which it might be obtained brask replied on behalf of the bishops saying that they could not help the state of the kingdom that they would do all in their power to put down abuses but that being directed by the pope to defend their property they could not do otherwise this brought gustavus himself to his feet he inquired whether the members of the diet considered this a fair answer tura Ewensen, the oldest among them replied that it was then said gustavus it will no longer be your king and if you can find one who would please you better i shall be glad pay me for my property in the kingdom and return what i have expended in your service and then i solemnly protest that i will never return to this degenerate and thankless native land of mine with this outburst he strode from the hall and left them to discuss at their leisure he knew what the result must be he had made sweden and it could not do without him they had all the power in their hands whilst his only asset was his own personality but it was enough and after three days the members of the diet sent to say that they would conform to his wishes in all things gustavus was now master the orders was the exception of the clergy made their proposals for dealing with the crisis contrary to all precedent these proposals were formulated by the Riksraad instead of being voted on by the whole diet but the resulting decree the famous vasteros recess was nevertheless put forward in its name it provided that all episcopal capitular and monastic property which was not absolutely required and of this he was the judge was to be handed over to the king all the lands exempt from the taxes Frasiord, which had been given to the church since fourteen fifty four were to revert to the original owners taxable land Skathiord, was to be given up however long it had been alienated preachers were to set forth the pure word of god and nothing else 
whilst on the religious question in general a disputation was to be held in the presence of the diet and a settlement to be made on it as a basis the disputation if held at all was naturally of no importance and the diet proceeded on june twenty fourth to pass the vasteros ordinantia consisting of twenty-two regulations on the subject of religion by these detailed provision was made for the confiscation of the bulk of the church property in accordance with the terms of the recess no dignitaries were to be appointed until their names had been approved by the king parish clergy were to be appointed by the bishops subject to removal by the king in case of unfitness small parishes might be united where it was desirable the gospels was to be taught in every school compulsory confession was abolished monks were not to be absent from their monasteries without license from the civil authority and so forth the result of these ordinances was to give the king all the power that he could wish for over the church dispirited and almost heartbroken the aged brusque before long obtained permission to visit the island of gotland which was part of his diocese crossed the baltic and joined archbishop magni at Danzig none of his brethren dared to oppose gustavus's will nor was it only the ecclesiastical order that suffered in sweden unlike denmark none but the king gained power through the reformation the riksrod once all-important was now nothing more than a complaisant royal council as leader of a popular movement gustavus had triumphed over the nobles who were glad to make common cause with the peasants wherever they were aggrieved it should however be noted that one of the vasteros ordinances gave the nobles the right to recover all their property which had been acquired by the churches and convents since the redaction of the year fourteen fifty four an important concession there were revolts from time to time generally directed in part at any rate against the new ecclesiastical order as for instance in west gothland in fifteen twenty nine under tura jumsen and again on a larger scale in fifteen forty two under niels Dacke. but they were in general easily put down and always left gustavus's power stronger than before nor was this all the inevitable result of the changes which were being made was to put into abeyance rights which formerly belonged to one class or another of the community these were by degrees seized upon by gustavus as a kind of extension of his prerogative royal and before long he was exercising without opposition an authority which no previous king of sweden had ever possessed in a council held at Urbru, early in fifteen forty the chief nobles were made to take an oath acknowledging gustavus's sons juan and eric as the legitimate heirs to the kingdom and the act of hereditary settlement passed on january thirteenth fifteen forty four formally recognized hereditary succession in the male line as the rule of the swedish constitution meanwhile the kingdom grew greatly in wealth and importance under gustavus's influence the mines of the north became vast sources of wealth manufacturers grew up everywhere and commerce was fostered by treaties with england france denmark and russia before his death which took place on michalmas day fifteen sixty he had raised sweden to a condition of unexampled prosperity and had prepared the way for the great epoch of the next century we now return to the swedish church although the ordinances of vasteros had shorn it of its grandeur and delivered it into gustavus's hands they had not abolished its essential character on january fifth fifteen twenty eight the bishops elect of skara strengnas and orbu were consecrated by the bishop of vasteros by command of the king end quote, without the confirmation of the pope indeed but with the accustomed rites and on the following day gustavus himself was crowned by them quote, with great pomp end quote, in the cathedral of upsala 
The monasteries were deprived of most of their property, and many of them ceased to exist at once. But the rest only died away by degrees, until at length there remained but a few nuns in the cloisters of Vodstiana, Nardendal, Skerninger, and Skog, who lived on the king's bounty. But no man in all Sweden died for the old faith. A certain number of the clergy were deprived, but the bulk of them still went on, and their general condition may perhaps be gauged by the fact that in not a few cases they married their former housekeeper or mistress in order to legitimize their children. The bishops had lost much of their property, but were still comparatively well off. For many years the new archbishop of Uppsala, Laurentius Petri, called Nericius, consecrated in 1531, used to support some fifty students in Uppsala, and the bishop Huitta of Olbu supported eight abroad. Gustavus himself did all in his power to prevent changes being forced on a reluctant people. A synod held at Urbru in 1529, under the presidency of Laurentius André, provided that a lesson from the Swedish Bible should be read daily in all cathedrals, and that evangelical preachers should be appointed to carry the new doctrines about the country. But the king was so careful to preserve the old ceremonies, or such of them as were, quote, not repugnant to God's word, end quote, that he roused no little indignation amongst the more extreme reformers, as having fallen away from the gospel. In 1528 he issued an ordinance insisting upon the payment of the legal dues of the clergy. Ten years later, when the nobles seemed to have learned too well the lesson which he had given them in the despoiling of churches, he restrained and rebuked those whose religious zeal manifested itself only in the way of destruction. Quote, After this fashion, he said, every man is a Christian and an evangelical. End quote. Yet he recognized no limits to his own power. It behoveth us as a Christian monarch, he wrote to the commons of the northern province, to appoint ordinances and rules for you. Therefore, must ye be obedient to our royal commands, as well in matters of spiritual as temporal. In 1540, when Laurentius André and Olaus Petri were put on their trial for treason in not having made known to the king a conspiracy, the existence of which they had learned in confession, the archbishop was compelled to be their judge. They were condemned to death, and only obtained pardon by the payment of a large fine. But although Gustavus ever denied that he was setting up a new church in Sweden, the changes became more pronounced as time went on, both in doctrine and discipline. Olaus Petri was putting forth a continual stream of tracts and pamphlets in Swedish, which reflected his own strict Lutheranism, and by degrees they had a considerable effect. The first Swedish service book, in Handbook Posensko, appeared in 1529 and was followed in 1530 by a hymn book and in 1531 by the first Swedish mass book, or Domissae Svetike, the Eucharistic doctrine of which was the, quote, consubstantiation, end quote, of Luther's early days. All of these were many times reprinted in subsequent years, though the use of the Latin service was by no means everywhere abolished. Gustavus himself gradually went further. He repudiated prayers for the dead and confession. For instance, he refused on his deathbed to listen to the clergy when they urged him to confess his sins and seek absolution. He seems at one time almost to have contemplated the discontinuance of the episcopal office. In 1539, one George Norman, who had been recommended to him by Melanchthon, was appointed by a commission not unlike that which had been given by Henry VIII to Cromwell a few years before, to superintend and visit the clergy and churches of Sweden and a general visitation of the whole kingdom took place under his auspices in 1540. From 1544 the king refused to give the episcopal title to any but the archbishop of Uppsala. The rest he styled as ordinaries, 
As time went on, the dioceses were divided up into some twelve portions in all. Under each its ordinary, that this division was in itself desirable, is likely enough, for the old dioceses were very large and unwieldy. Moreover, some, at any rate, of Gustavus's new ordinaries were in episcopal orders, e.g., when the old diocese of Orbu, Finland, was subdivided into Orbu and Vibori, the two new ordinaries, Michael Agricola, who had been previously vicar-general of the whole diocese, and Paulus Euston, were consecrated as bishops together by Bishop Botvid of Strengnas in fifteen fifty four. Nevertheless, the effect of this action was undoubtedly to cast a slight upon the episcopal order, and had there not been a reaction subsequently, it must have been highly prejudicial, if not fatal, to the continued existence of the episcopacy of Sweden. The nine years of Gustavus's son and successor, Eric the Fourteenth, fifteen sixty to sixty nine, for some time the suitor of Elizabeth of England, were years of disaster for the Swedish state, and not less so for the church. He inclined toward Calvinism, and already during his father's lifetime, an overture had been made by Calvin towards the Swedish royal house by the joint dedication of a writing to father and son. It was ineffective so far as Gustavus was concerned. But Eric, on his accession, at once began to show favour towards Calvinists, announced his intention of making Sweden a refuge for distressed Protestants, and used his authority in the church to bring about the suppression of a few fast days and other observances of the old order. His wasteful extravagance from the first pressed heavily on the state, but his real afflictions rose in the latter part of his reign, when he was engaged in war both at home and abroad, and everything was allowed to fall into neglect. Churches fell into ruins, the church plate disappeared, benefices were not filled up or only by incompetent persons, and the schools ceased to exist. At length, in 1569, Eric was dethroned by his brothers Johann and Karl, to whom their father had left hereditary dukedoms, and who seemed to have agreed upon a joint conduct of the government after Eric's deposition. And some years later, he was brutally murdered in prison, in pursuance of a vote of the members of the Riksråd, both lay and clerical. The new king, Johann III, was a scholar and a theologian, whose reading of Cassander and other similar divines led him to lay all possible stress upon the ancient order of the Swedish church. Whilst his love for his consort Catherine, the sister of Sigismund II of Poland, who was a Roman Catholic, inclined him to seek a reconciliation with the Pope, if it could not be obtained on reasonable terms. Under his influence, a new church order, Schirke Ordning, was drawn up by the aged Archbishop Laurentius Petri, and put forth by authority, which became the basis of the practice which prevails at the present day. Care is taken for the education and examination of the clergy, though the use by them of books of homilies such as Postilla of Olaus Petri is permitted. Latin psalms and prayers may still be used, and confession, excommunication, and public penance are provided for. The bishop is elected by the clergy and others having competent knowledge and consecrated in due course. The people choose their minister and present him to the bishop, who either ordains him or another in his place. But it is noticed that the same form of service is to be used whether the person is so, quote, consecrated, end quote, is previously a layman or a minister from another charge. There are also assistant clergy or chaplains, coppelaner, in the larger parishes. Before long, the king was able to make further changes. The old archbishop died in 1573, in June of the following year. Quote, the principal divines, unquote, were convened for the election of a successor, and, quote, the votes of the great majority, end quote, 
were given to his son-in-law, Laurentius Petrigorthus, who was a student of the fathers and in many ways like-minded with the king. In December, the archbishop-elect was confirmed by the king after giving his assent to a series of seventeen articles, which approved of the restoration of the convents, prayers for the dead, and the veneration of saints. And on July 15, 1575, he was consecrated, quote, according to the complete Catholic use, end quote, with the mitre, crosier, ring, and chrism, which were also used by the new archbishop in future consecrations of his suffragans. The royal ordinance presently restored the archbishop that jurisdiction over his suffragans, which had almost ceased to exist under Gustavus, and another gave archbishop and chapter of Uppsala a voice in all elections of bishops. Other changes were made of the same general character, and some of the old convents were reopened. In 1576 a more important step was taken. A new liturgy on the lines of the reformed Roman Missal, the so-called, quote, Red Book of Sweden, end quote, Erdebuchen, was published. It was fathered by the archbishop in a preface, but was really the work of the king and his secretary, Petter Fechen. It was adopted after considerable opposition, in which the bishops of Lin Shiping and Streng Nas took part. At the Diet of 1577, and the king did his best to force it upon the whole church, but he was never able to compel all the country clergy to use it. And his brother Karl, the Duke of Sudermanland, afterwards Charles the Ninth, the ablest by far of the quote, brood of King Gustavus, end quote, not only refused to adopt it, but made himself the champion of the Schirker Ordning of 1571, and of all who suffered for their fidelity to it. The result during Yuan's lifetime was estrangement and very nearly civil war between the brothers. After his death, it led to the triumph of Lutheranism at the Uppsala Myrta. All this time, the king was carrying on negotiations with the papacy. So early as 1572, Cardinal Stanislaus Hosius was writing hopefully of his conversion. In 1576, two Jesuits from Louvain, Florentius Fate and Laurentius the Norwegian, appeared at Stockholm in the guise of evangelical preachers. They were instructed to proceed with great caution. The cardinal gave directions that the last name was to extol faith and depreciate works without faith, to preach Christ as the only mediator and his cross as the only means to salvation. Quote, and thereupon, he proceeded, let them show nothing else that has been preached in the papal church. We know from their own account that at the king's bidding they concealed their real condition and were taken for Lutherans and the clergy were compelled to receive their instruction, which was carried on in the spirit of Hosius' directions. In the same year, the king sent messengers to Rome to negotiate for the restoration of the papal authority in Sweden. It soon became evident that he was asking for conditions which were not likely to be granted. He demanded, amongst other things, the concession of the cup to the laity, the partial use of Swedish in the liturgy, the surrender of clerical exemptions, toleration of the marriage of the clergy, though with a preference for celibacy and on the condonation of all that had been done in the past. The time was passed for such concessions, although hopes of something of the kind were held out more than once by Cardinal Hosius in his letters. In 1577, however, the Jesuit Antony Possevin was sent to the north, with a commission as legate to the emperor, and instructions to use all his influence with King Yuan. He made his appearance in the following year, and so great was the impression which he produced upon the king, that after a few interviews, as we are told in his reports, Yuan declared his willingness to make the Tridentine profession of faith without waiting to see what concessions the Pope might be willing to make towards Sweden. He accordingly did so, made his confession and was absolved, penance being imposed upon him for the murder of his brother, for which he had always felt the deepest remorse, 
and received communion in the Roman manner. This year, then, marks the zenith of the papal influence. About the same time, Bishop Martin Olofsson of Linköping, who had always been opposed to the direction in which things were moving in the Swedish church, was deposed and degraded for calling the Pope Antichrist. Luther's catechism, which had been used in the schools for some years, was made to give place to that of Canisius. Many Jesuits were admitted into the country, on one pretext or another, and large numbers of Swedish boys were sent abroad to be educated in their seminaries. Above all, the primatial see was kept vacant for four years after the death of Laurentius Petrigorthus in 1579, in the hope that it might be next filled by an archbishop of the Roman obedience. This hope was doomed to be disappointed, for the proposed surrender proved to be less attractive on a nearer view. The king's plans and religion were closely bound up with political schemes which had for their object the obtaining for himself the duchies of Bari and Rossani in right of his wife, whose mother was a Sforza, and these had just received a check. Gregory the Thirteenth declined to make the concessions which Yuan thought that he had been led to expect, and on further consideration he found himself too honestly convinced of the essential soundness of the position of the Swedish church to be content to give up all that had been won already. The last shreds of the influence of the Romanizing party disappeared entirely after the death of Queen Catherine in 1584. The Jesuits and their fautores were once more expelled, and Johann, after turning his thoughts for a moment towards the Orthodox East, settled down to the work of consolidating the Swedish church as he found it. Not long afterwards, however, the question was reopened, and in more acute form by the death of the III on November 17, 1592. The crown fell to his son Sigismund, who had been elected King of Poland in 1586, and who was a convinced Roman Catholic. With the consent of the Riksrod, his uncle, Duke Charles, at once assumed the government in his name, and together they resolved to make provision for the maintenance of Protestantism before the new king arrived. The Rod was anxious that the matter should be dealt with by certain members of their own body, in conjunction with the delegates of the clergy, but Charles had made his brother promise two years before that a general assembly, Schirkumerta, would be held, and he assented to the demand of the clergy that it should take place now. Accordingly, a synod was convened, which was attended by deputies both clerical and lay, from all parts of the kingdom, though Finland was but sparsely represented. There were present, in addition to the members of the Riksrod, four bishops, most of the sees were vacant and were filled whilst the synod was still in session, over three hundred clergy, and nearly as many nobles and representatives of the citizens, miners, and peasants. The famous Uppsala Myrta was opened on February 25, 1593, Nicolaus Bothniensis, one of the professors of theology at Uppsala, being chosen as speaker. The assembly first laid down the rule of scripture as the basis of all doctrine. Then it sought a doctrinal standard, and the obvious one was the Augsburg Confession, which had already been commonly accepted in Sweden, though it had never been definitely adopted by the Swedish Church. The articles were now gone through one by one, after which Luther's catechism was again made the basis for instruction in religion. The use of the Red Book was abolished, and Laurentius Petri's church ordinance once more became the standard of worship, subject, however, to a certain amount of pruning in the matter of ritual. After this, the synod proceeded to the details of practical reform. The Uppsala Myrtha may be considered the coping stone of the Swedish Reformation. Sigismund came to the throne with the knowledge that his new kingdom had made a definite stand from which there could be no withdrawal, and although many efforts were made during his reign on behalf of Roman Catholicism, first for concurrent establishment, 
and then, for bare toleration, the issue was never for a moment doubtful. The Swedish church was definitely committed to Lutheranism. The clergy continued to be in a state of the realm down to the middle of the 19th century, and separation from the national communion was so severely punished that until modern days organized dissent was practically unknown. The endeavours of Charles IX, the most learned of the royal brothers, to widen the doctrinal basis of the Swedish church, were on the whole unsuccessful. But it was not only in Sweden that the murder had far-reaching consequences. The definite adhesion of Sweden to the Augsburg Confession gave strength to the cause of Protestantism everywhere. It opened the way for the Protestant League of the North in the following century. End of section 65